You are listening to UBC Waco Podcast. <laughs> are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. Uh, good morning. Welcome to UBC. If you've been here all the time, that's great. Uh, if you're first Sunday, it's great. Uh, that was wonderful. I, I, I try not to make this about me and my ego, but I do ask for like surveys a lot and other things, and hands don't go up, and I say what I like, and there's just not really... So, you know, I'm just going to remember that. That's fine. Okay. <laughs> Joy. Uh, the philologist J.R. Token, the wonder human, the genius, the story writer, uh, coined this phrase, the eucatastrophe, the prefix U-E-U, um, we might know from euphoria. It, it connotes something there. Uh, Eucharist, we take this meal together and we put these words together and pull them apart. It is good gift, that is the self-giving of Christ. So uh, eucatastrophe then is... Catastrophe would know in, in Eucatastrophe. The definition he offered is a, uh, a surprise, joyful ending to an otherwise decidedly bad story. Um, and if, you, if you've read the books or you've seen the movies, you know about the skill in which Tolkien gave himself to, to telling us uh, King Theoden has died. Denethor, the steward of Gondor, is on the brink of insanity. Gondor, the mighty city of men, is falling into the hands of Orcs, um, Sauron is gaining power. The fate of humanity rests in the pair of the hands of, a, of a hobbits who have to penetrate Mordor and throw a ring into lava. And if all of that isn't nerdy enough for you, Thanos has the glove with all of the rings and the White Walkers have a dragon. It's just really bleak, man. It does not look good. But don't worry because Nick Fury has called Captain Marvel. And then go back to uh, Lord of the Rings. Frodo himself really can't even get himself to destroy the ring. It, it's, it's ultimately sin. It is Gollum's greed that destroys the ring. But against all odds, the good guys win. That's a catastrophe. Uh, Tolkien, you may know, eventually connected this concept with the gospel, which he called the ultimate catastrophe of human history. Um, more specifically, he said the um, incarnation is the ultimate eucatastrophe of human history and that the resurrection is the eucatastrophe of the incarnation. Uh, it strikes me that a key element of, of euphoria, or joy, this we're talking about this week, is this nature of surprise. It's, it's emotion that sits in the brink inside of us all of the time. And you think about these videos you see around Halloween where people are surprised, or you think about Ellen before she got canceled and she had people on her show. That uh, initial instinct that sits within us erupts and it can either go to horror or joy, but, but the root of that is very much the same. Um, or sometimes if the surprise is holy, it can be both of those things at the same time. This is the appearance of the angel of the Lord to the main characters in our Christmas story. Two weeks ago, I talked about how pervasive the need is in the human mind to predict just about everything we experience, including the steps we take to everything else we do. So in a world where we now can map our genetic code through DNA and, and physics is teaching us more about the universe, what we don't know seems to be shrinking, and so I think surprise is a harder experience to come by. Radiolab aired this episode in 2009 that I thought was just wonderful. It was called A Very Lucky Wind. That was the main story, not the one I'm going to tell you. But um, part of the story featured Berkeley statistics professor Deborah Nolan, who um, set up this game of randomness for the Radiolab guys. So they came into a room. She had some of her graduate students on one side and the Radiolab guys on the other. And she said, okay, um, you Radiolab guys, what you're going to do is you're going to take a coin and you're going to flip it 100 times and you're going to record heads or tails. You graduate students, you're going to um, fake the data. You're just going to generate the randomness in your heads. You're not going to flip a coin. I'm going to walk out of the room. I'm not going to know which side is which. I'm going to come back in, and I'm going to look at these, these boards, and then I'm going to tell you which one of you flipped a coin. So they do this. 
And the two groups, they look at each other's words like, oh, this is, this is pretty good. It's, uh, it's equally random. It's... So then uh, Deborah Nolan walks back in. It takes her about 30 seconds to look at the, guy, the radio lab guy's board and said, that was the coin flip. And they're all flabbergasted. Well, it turns out that the radio lab guys had a string of seven tails in a row, which was the dead giveaway. Because the, the graduate students in their random generating only ever put a streak of, of four together because there's, they said there's no way you would ever at random get more consistent heads or tails in a row than that. But that was the surprise of the research, in fact, is that even that doesn't behave the way that we think that it does. The truth is, is that surprise is all around us all the time, but it's hard to see because we don't expect to see it. It makes joy then, I think, something even harder to find. Let me give you an example. Uh, this is a picture. This is Mark Jackson. He played in the NBA. Um, he, I would say, had a, a decent marginal career. He played college ball at St. John's. He got drafted. He was rookie of the year, I think, at 88 or something like that. He did appear in one all-star game, but my point is, for most of his career, it was, like I said, pretty marginal. Uh, maybe the way I could make the, the strongest case was that before this random week in 2018, and for the 20-some years before that, his 1990 NBA Hoops rookie card was going for anywhere between a dime to 15 cents on the internet or wherever else you would look for it. But then in 2008, the average price of his basketball card skyrocketed to as much at one point on Etsy to $2,500. The card uh, hadn't changed in 28 years. Uh, Mark Jackson's career really hadn't changed off the court. What had changed was that one Reddit user, uh, Pirate Redbeard, noticed that the two individuals that are seated behind Mark Jackson's right, shoulders, right shoulder are the Menendez brothers. The Menendez brothers, you might remember, are infamous for having killed their parents. What's more, Pirate Redbeard speculated that the photo was taken between the day of the murder, which was August 20th, 1989, and when the Menendez brothers were apprehended in March of 1990, this speculation was confirmed by Action Network Daryl Ravel, who does this kind of thing. These stories about these things that we possess having all of a sudden surprising value are, are legion. You can look them up on the internet. They usually involve what, like art, a uh, trip to the attic where somebody cleans something out, maybe jewelry. Uh, but let me tell you about my favorite. In 1998, McDonald's offered a limited-time Szechuan sauce. I'm not sure if I got this right in the pronunciation. As part of a promotional push for the animated version of, of Mulan. After the movie hype disappeared, seemingly so did all these packets of Szechuan sauce. And this became a culinary afterthought. Then, almost 20 years later, in 2017, Adult Swim's animated sci-fi sitcom Rick and Morty premiered in, in one of the episodes in season one. Uh, I think Morty, Rick, I don't know, one of the characters um, sheds light on this and talks about the greatness of McDonald's Szechuan sauce and how it changed history. Well, there are two places in the world where you can find absolutely anything. They are Bucky's Gas Stations and eBay. Uh, with the prompt offered by Rick and Morty in their television show, people began scouring all those places in your house where you might have a 20-year-old piece of of condiment sauce, including that place in your refrigerator where you keep them and forget about them. One lucky user, who goes by the eBay name of GamesDM, found not just a packet, but an entire bottle unopened of McDonald's Milan Szechuan sauce and auctioned it off for $15,350. The possibility of joy exists everywhere. Uh, so speaking of surprise, I couldn't do another week of John the Baptist. Don't worry, he'll show up next Advent and every Advent after that. He'll be around. Um, but I, I did mosey on over to the Minor Prophets, who um, 
really can be an unruly, grumpy bunch. You know, I think a lot of Enneagram 8 energy in there, some phobic 6 energy in there. Uh, they don't need Thanksgiving or liquid courage to make conversations really awkward in a hurry. Uh, it's like, hi, I'm Amos. You suck. Quit oppressing God's people or go to hell, that kind of a thing. And still, despite their obscurity and their sometimes unfamiliarity, we need to hear from them because they're part of our story. So what I'm going to do for you, because I, I don't reckon that a lot of you have sat down and read Zephaniah recently, I'm going to re- remind us what's happening. Zephaniah is addressing the southern kingdom. This is the two tribes that made it down there, Benjamin and Judah. And um, here's a concise summary of the book. 1, 1 through 18. Judah is terrible and has it coming. 2, 1 through 15. The nations are terrible and have it coming, but there's a remnant. 3, 1 through 20. The details of Jerusalem's judgment and then, surprise, Jerusalem's joy. And because we are disciples of Brene Brown who have an extra emphasis on self-care, this is the part of Zephaniah that we include in the lectionary and what I'm going to read to you now. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exalt with all of your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has turned away your enemies, the King of Israel. The Lord is in your midst. You shall fear disaster no more. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, do not fear, O Zion, do not let your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior who gives victory. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will renew you with his love. He will exalt over you with loud singing. On the day of a festival, I will remove disaster from you so that you will not bear reproach for it. I will deal with your oppressors at that time. I will save the lame and gather the outcast. I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you home. At that time, I will gather you, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. God will rejoice over you with singing. Let me ask you a question. What is your image of God like? More specifically, what is your image of God's opinion of you like? When you think of God and what God thinks of you, what does God do? What does God say? Is God elated? Is God excited? Does God have joy when God thinks about you? I want to offer you an image. Um, This is a a few years ago. We had a a couple who worshipped with us. Um, They've since moved to Tennessee, Adam and Anna Tilson. Um, Anna was still as a CPA. She was on our finance team. Adam was a master's student at Truett. That's why they were here. Um, And in their last year here, right before they left, they, they found out that were expecting a child, and so they did the birth announcement like people do with, I think, the shoes in front of UBC's doors. You can see we were very significant in their lives. And um, it turns out that this was going to be um, Adam's mom's first grandchild, and they recorded the, the, the a moment when they told their parents that they were expecting a child, and I have that video. I want to see if you can, of the two sets of parents, figure out which one is Adam's mom by the response, okay?
so long to tell us. You wait until after the first trimester is almost over, Daddy. So you I'm do. about. Uh, so given what I believe about God and time, it's sort of linguistically useless for me to speak of this moment or positive moment when God would have conceived of you. But um, I can say what the Bible says about the prophet Jeremiah, which is before you were knitted in your mother's womb, I knew you. Uh, so let's apply the metaphor. What if God's response to your cosmic sonogram picture is something like that? Or what if it's better because God's love for us is perfect? God will rejoice over you with singing. This is the eucatastrophe of history. God will remove disaster from your midst. Um, when I was a youngster, say sixth grade, uh, the very cool thing to do was own a boombox that could play CDs. Uh, you had arrived. Most of my friends had the Sony model, a very specific one. I remember I couldn't afford that, but I had set my eyes on a less uh, expensive, kind of acceptable Magnavox model. And so um, I, I started saving up for that because any kid with value had this. And so like birthdays and my allowance, which was like maybe a dollar a week, maybe I was up to $5 a week, I don't remember. But best case scenario, saving up for this boombox was like five months of work. And so I got to like $80 and my family made a big trip to, um, to the, the city. I can't remember which one, probably Milwaukee because my brother was attending Marquette at the time. And I, by big city, a place that had a Target. And, and we walked in and um, I perused over to the... Uh, the electronic section, and they had my Magnavox boombox. And um, there it sat, like a, a temptress, you know, with its AM, FM dials, and its uh, cassette player, and like a crown on its head was that DVD, or that CD player. And um, so I, I said, you know what, um, I'm gonna go ask my mom if we can pull the trigger today, get a little bit of a loan and just do this. So she's very firm about these things, says, no, uh, you're gonna work and save. I go back and forth. I think maybe it was on sale or something, you know, sales help. So I convinced my mom to do it. So I took out $20 of debt and I came home from Milwaukee with this Magnavox CD player. Uh, fast forward a few months. I do not have this boombox paid off. Meanwhile, my good neighbor friends, um, Nathan and Nicholas uh, Nelmark and I have taken to um, uh, driving our bikes about a half, a half a mile from their house to the local pub to uh, see if we can purchase some candy. Um, and so we did this, and then eventually our interests and our stomachs and, uh, grew, and, and so we upgraded to like a basket of fries. Now you may be wondering, where did I get this money? Good question. Uh, Julie Nelmark had this gigantic jar, glass bottle thing full of dimes and quarters she would save. And in kind, my dad had a really ancient piece of ceramic something that he kept coins in. And so very slowly, as not to be noticed, we were taking change from their jars to go down to JD's pub. And... Um, you know, eventually French fries turned into full meals. I'm not sure it was legal for us to be in a bar as a third, fourth, and sixth grader in Wisconsin. They'll turn a blind eye to anything. And so um, eventually Julie Nelmark noticed that her dime collection was very much diminishing. And so she confronted her children who promptly threw me under the bus. My parents got a phone call. And so I had to have a hard conversation about why my pockets were dragging on the dirt roads on the way down to JD's pub because I had taken so much of my dad's money. Um, <laughs> I had to confess to my parents that I, in fact, was bar hopping and I was doing it on their dime, and we had a hard conversation. Um, and at the end of the conversation, my dad said, son, your debt is forgiven. And I'm like, oh, thanks, dad. I promise I only took like 14, 25. He's like, no, 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 no. Your debt is forgiven. You don't have to pay us back for the boombox. What my dad did was decided to look at the problem holistically. The, the stealing happened, yes, because I'm a sinner, but also because it was circumstantial. My income was eaten up by my debt, and to solve that problem, he removed it entirely so that I could genuinely flourish in my fiscal life. God does that. God will remove 
disaster from your midst. And God will bring you home. Uh, a lot of you know my sister. She's not here today. She's up in Minnesota visiting my other sister. She's fun-loving. She's an Enneagram 7 who's pretty carefree. And um, she was not always that way. Uh, we used to be kids. Um, and I was a, a better... <laughs> I was a better child than my sister. Um, I would compare me to like Kevin from the Wonder Years. Yes, I just told you the Pilferage story, but overall, uh, pretty good. Was Kevin perfect? No, but, you know, nice guy. Um, so uh, my sister was more like Nellie Olson from Little House on the Prairie. Uh, she was very mean. Um, if you think I'm making this up, you can ask my mom. She's over there in the red coat. Um, so in this story, Noelle is like seven years old. And she's very upset at everybody in her family. Uh, a few hours later, my mom gets a list of demands. And it's demands that if we don't meet, she's going to threaten to run away. And so um, it's like, I want my own room. Um, I want more time with the puppy by myself. I want my allowance raised, an explanation about how she works harder than everybody else. Well, I'm like five, and I don't much like Noelle, but my goodness, I don't want her to run away. But my mom says to her, that's fine. And um, I'm, just, I'm just horrified. Like, um, how could my mom give up on my sister so easily? <laughs> like, now that I'm 40, I figured this out, right? Parents, what was she doing? She was, she was calling her bluff. So that evening, the time for the demands uh, to be met rolls around. And we're all eating. Uh, Noelle has her suitcase with, like, rainbow bright packed. And um, in her persistent anger, she tells us she's leaving. One last chance to fold under the pressure of the demands. And my mom says, see you later. And, um, and I'm like, well, in a stroke of irony, I'm the one who's going to end up with my own room. I'll take that. Um, so Noelle starts walking down our very long driveway, suitcase in hand, and the rest of the family. We, we were packing up, and we got in the car not, not far behind her. And uh, we, we approached her on the driveway, and my mom rolled down the window, just going to check in on her. And it, <clears throat> Noelle's uh, in tears. <clears throat> Excuse me. And... Um, She's crying and, and through tears. I'm not being emotional, by the way. That's something in my throat. <clears> throat> she said, <clears throat> through tears, she says, do I have to run away? And my mom opened her car door. This is very dramatic. <clears throat> <clears throat> uh, is it somebody else's water? <clears throat> All right. Sorry, this build the tension. That's what they say in comedy. Okay. Um, so anyhow, and my mom gets out of the van and she kneels down in the grass next to my sister and she pulled her into her arms and she said, um, <clears throat> no, you don't have to run away, sweetie. Why don't we go back to the house and unpack your bag? God is like that. God will bring you home. It was a catastrophe. You know, every year I, I preach the third week of joy Inevitably, at some point, I have, to, um, I have to do a kind of apology. It's because uh, joy can't be prescribed. It's, it's just experienced. Uh, my church herd groups that we did this semester, we talked about the Mars Hill podcast, met for the last time on Wednesday, and, you know, talking about the end of all things, we were talking about megachurches, and eventually Joel Steen's name came up, and we talked about this culture of toxic positivity, and, and there's certainly an epidemic of that in our, in our social culture, and life is hard, and joy seems to be in short supply, it feels like, all the time, um, and still I believe that it is hidden all around us waiting to be seen. Um, I did want to say this. You will find what you are looking for. 
some of the most joyful people I know are not myopic and disengaged from the world's problems, but they've adopted a posture and a vision that can see all the grandeur and joy that the world has to offer. Um, I want to show you one last image. I collect memes to share from time to time on Instagram, and I've been saving this one for over a month for the week of Advent joy. Um, it's a picture of a dog who has... Did I include the picture? Oh, I'm getting this. Okay. Uh, well, you can imagine. It's like very excited dog. <laughs> and this dog has a backpack strapped to its back. And um, he's mid-stride. His ears are like up here flopping, you know, like these things going on, like that kind of thing. And um, if you look closely, there's something coming sprinkled out of the dog's backpack, which upon scrutiny you learn is, is seeds. And um, the original caption reads, please enjoy this picture of a dog trained to scatter seeds to help restore a forest damaged by fire. And then someone responded and said, no matter how much job satisfaction you think you have, you're not a dog whose job it is to run madly around the forest. Um, on paper, I don't think dogs have very good lives. Uh, often they spend hours a day napping, big plus, but it's usually like what, on ceramic tile or a wood floor or carpet if they're lucky. Uh, their food isn't very good and you know it because at one point in your childhood you tried at least one piece. Um, like they only drink water, sometimes from a toilet, never Mountain Dew. Uh, to go to the bathroom, they can't go until somebody lets them outside. Uh, to clean themselves, well, you know dogs. Um, but dogs, some of the happiest beings I know. You ever see anyone else get as excited when you came home to your house? You think a cat is going to greet you like that? Um, and I don't know, maybe it's because they don't have frontal lobes, but they seem like really joyful despite their circumstances. Uh, kids, until they reach a certain age, same thing. They get super excited like about what? A box of crayons and a toilet plunger. Uh, disappointment is a learned experience. My point is, that the possibility of joy exists for all of us because on the deepest, most profound level, our story is a catastrophe. It is a surprisingly good ending to what is an otherwise decidedly bad story, and that story is your story. So UBC, may we be like a dog who scatters seed in the field. May we be like a dog that gets to eat hamburgers. May we be present to the reality that our story has joy hidden in the end. May we see a God who removes disaster from our midst. May we hear a God who is singing over us. And may we be held by a God who wants to bring us home. Let's pray. God, we're thankful for the words of the prophet Zephaniah. And we are a people who hear the words of rebuke. And we are a people who are surprised by the grace and the goodness of your joy. That we really do belong to a story that's a catastrophe that this has a good ending despite how the circumstances can sometimes feel. So Holy Spirit, what we ask this week as we move and live and have our being in you is that we take in the world, we would do it with a lens that's able to see like that dog who runs through the field, that we would see the joy that's hidden all around us. And we trust that you'll help us to see because of what you promised us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. At the conclusion of the preaching moment in worship, we like to take time and sit together in silence and listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps the Spirit will correct something I have said incorrectly. Perhaps the Spirit will minister something new.